Well, good morning. Takes your breath away, doesn't it? Open your Bibles with me to the Gospel of Mark. It is such a joy to gather and to sing, to hear the voice of the saints lifted in praise. To sing is to breathe the, hair, the air of heaven. And I'll tell you, with Caroline's violin accompanying Brady and Diana, that is not hard to imagine. What a blessing that is. H.B. Charles Jr. had a recent Ligonier conference. He said, quote, It is the will of God to have the Spirit of God use the Word of God to make the children of God look like the Son of God. I think some people might be waking up this morning still. I'll say that again. It is the will of God to have the Spirit of God use the Word of God to make the children of God look like the Son of God. Let us ponder that for a moment. God so loves his son, not only has he gifted everything to him and put everything in subjection under his feet, but he has determined to save a people unto himself, for himself, for one reason, to turn them into the likeness of his son. I'm going to save you by the power of my spirit, using the power of my word, and I'm going to turn you into the one I love the most. That's, the, that's what sanctification is, beloved. The process of turning you into the image and the likeness of Jesus Christ. This is the will of God. And He's accomplishing it through His Spirit and by the power of His Word. In January 1546, Martin Luther, he traveled to Eiselben, Germany, which happened to be the town where Luther was born. And while he was there, the townspeople, they prevailed upon Luther to preach in the very home church where he had been raised and even baptized as a child. Well, little, little did Luther know that this was to be his last sermon, but he was fiery right to the end. He told those sitting there, quote, you think there is power in the relics that you travel to see and venerate in your many pilgrimage pilgrimages you think there is power in moses's staff in joseph's coat in pilate's steps or mary's milk luther proclaimed that is not where the power is god put the power in the word and that is what is he's using to change us beloved by the power of his spirit through the ministry of the word he's accomplishing it and we need to be changed beloved but how do we know how do we know if God's sanctifying work is being done in our lives? How do we know if we're on the path of progressive sanctification? Well, are we obedient? You might say, well, sometimes, pastor, maybe much more often than not. Does that mean I'm off the path? Saints, while we are to strive for holiness in our life, our walk of sanctification is not about perfection. It's about direction. Said again, for people like me that need to hear things twice, we are not looking at perfection. We are looking at direction. What is your trajectory? I recently had a dear brother tell me that he and his wife go away once a year to talk about all aspects of their marriage and their life together. Church, family, finances, relationship. You know, I thought, what a great time to evaluate the trajectory of our growth in Christ. One year is plenty of time to look back and ask, am I more like Jesus today than I was a year ago? Not looking at perfection, looking at direction. Am I pointed the right way? 
A true believer is not marked by their perfection, but by their distinct and their continual and their unrelenting direction. A righteous man may fall seven times, but he gets back up seven times. If you have fallen this week, repent and get back up and start walking again. And he is doing this work in our life through the word. Here this morning, we are to examine ourselves. Paul exhorts the Christians at Corinth to see whether we be in the faith. How's our trajectory? Do our external actions match our professed inward change? Now, of course, we're not saved by our actions, but it is by those actions that we evaluate this genuine inward change that has been wrought by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, as revealed in Scripture alone, and to the glory of God alone. Praise the Lord. It is the will of God to have the Spirit of God Use the word of God to make the children of God look like the Son of God. And we desire to be in the center of his will this morning. We are reliant on the Spirit of God to do its convicting and its purifying work through us, through the inerrant word of God, that we, his children, might be daily transformed and changed into the image of Christ and to praise him for the work he has already done. That's the reason we gather here this morning. Amen? Amen. Amen. Well, last week we finally completed our four-part series, Count the Cost. What a challenging message and call it was from our Lord. It was a devastating gospel call that's so very contrary to modern messages that we hear today. A call to true discipleship. It was one of many hard messages by Jesus that was instrumental in taking his followers from hundreds down to 12. Those who live a life pleasing to the Lord realize very quickly that we are not on a popularity contest here in our our pilgrimage. If the world is applauding us, we took an off-ramp somewhere. We'd better go back and check our GPS. Discipleship comes with a cross, not with applause. I pray that series, Count the Cost, had a deep impact on your walk. I know it did on mine. And glory be now, you've all officially earned the t-shirt, I Survived Chapter 8 of Mark at HHPC. Not for the faint of heart. I'm proud of you all for digging in and for going deep. And you know, I can imagine that you become quite excited as well as you see the Word doing its work in your life seeing a depth of Scripture that you may not have seen before, enjoying the richness of it, swimming in the oceans of it. I know most Sundays it feels like we bring a, a thimble or a teacup to hold it all in. Praise the Lord, we have eternity to study this Word, saints. Like so many things in our Christian life, this is but a taste of what is to come, to whet your appetite for the day that we will sit down with each other at the marriage supper of the Lamb. That's good. And today, as we begin chapter 9, we arrive upon one of the most consequential scenes of Jesus' time on this earth. Now, we could swim in some very deep oceans as we come upon what is known as the transfiguration. And some may recall back in chapter 8 a scene that we refer to as the linchpin of Mark, Peter's confession in Caesarea Philippi of who Jesus was. Back in Mark 8, verse 31, Jesus was asking his disciples who people thought Jesus was. 
And of course, Jesus makes the proclamation of the ages, doesn't he? You are the Christ. You're the son of the living God. And if we were to view the gospel of Mark as a mountain, this declaration by Peter is the summit. This was the hinge point. Everything that happened up to this point was leading up to and building toward this. And indeed, everything after that would flow down from this declaration. While Peter had witnessed all of the miracles up to this point, so had thousands of others. So had thousands of others, yet they're nowhere to be found. No, Jesus tells Peter that flesh and blood, mere man could not have revealed this to Peter, but only God, the Father. This was a declaration of faith by Peter. And yet we've seen the absolute roller coaster that our disciples were on during that time. From mountain high of Peter's confession to valley low, of Peter getting rebuked by Jesus as he says, get behind me, Satan, right? From the mountain high of making the proclamation of the ages and the master telling me that I got the answer right to the most consequential question in the world, to valley low, straight away in chapter 8, verse 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests. And he's going to be killed. He's going to be killed. From you are the Christ, the Son of the, loving, of the living God and the loving God, to a strange story about a murdered Messiah. Up and down, emotional and spiritual whiplash for these men especially for those closest to Jesus in his inner circle, those whom he loved personally and he was closest to, men like Peter, James, and John. And now we just left a four-part series where Jesus levels even more devastating news. Not only am I going to be killed, but you are to pick up your cross and follow me. If you're still having visions of a messianic army coming to crush the Romans with Captain Peter and Lieutenant James charging and Sergeant John coming up in reserve, think again. Those hopes are dashed. They are dashed. These men are crushed. It has been a one, two, three punch. Get behind me, Satan. Punch. I'm going to suffer and be killed. Punch. The cost for being my disciple is, an honored, is not an honored place in the Messianic army, but a bloody instrument of execution. Punch. And the boys are down for the count. They're down. That's the state they find themselves in this morning. And I want you to be with them psychologically. I want us to be walking with them through these trials and through the triumphs. They are but men, just like us. So with that, let's look at our text. Mark 9, 1 through 3. Mark 9, 1 through 3. And Jesus was saying to them, Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God having come in power. And six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and brought them up on a high mountain alone by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his garments were shining intensely white as no launderer on earth can whiten them. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are eminently grateful 
that you have allowed us to peer behind the curtain this morning. That you have allowed us to see as things are and as they will be. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would attend to your word. We ask that the arrow would find its mark this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, I hope we have our jogging shoes on this morning. We have a very good deal of ground to cover, so we're going to be diving right into verse 1. In verse 1 here, we see we have something of an enigma in Scripture. Many good theologians and commentators have a disagreement how chapter 8 and chapter 9 have been split up. And a good majority prefer for our first verse here this morning to be better connected to verse 38 of chapter 8 at the end. And there's good reason for that. In fact, you'll find many sermon series on the transfiguration of the mount beginning with verse 2. And other prefer, others prefer the text break that we see in our Bibles on your lap here, connecting verse 1 to the transfiguration. Well, ever, ever the rebel, I suppose, I'm going with neither option. The opening three Greek words here suggest in verse 1, neither. They suggest neither. They suggest that this is an independent verse that was inserted to link both sides of the equation, right? That the transfiguration we're about to see in chapter 9 is in response to, is connected to the call for discipleship in chapter 8. Verse 1 is telling us here that this event is meant to be read in light of the other. So let's do that. Let's read verse 1 and we'll explain further. Mark 9, verse 1. And Jesus was saying to them, Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God having come in power. (laughs) We have some tremendous themes that are woven throughout here. But big picture, what is Jesus talking about here? What is he saying? What is he doing? Well, first off, Jesus is encouraging his disciples. After taking a shellacking over the last chapter, after having their hopes and their dreams utterly crushed, after receiving devastating news that not only was their disciple going to, their Messiah going to die, but they're likely going to have to die as well for following him. Well, I don't know about you, but I could use a little pick me up. So, what is Jesus saying in verse 1? He's saying that there are a few people standing here, a select few, that are going to get a down payment on what's coming. To encourage your hearts for the road road ahead, I'm going to give you a peek behind the curtain. After the rejection, the suffering, and the death, there's going to be a resurrection. And there's going to be glory. That's what's coming. And I know what you've heard and what you've experienced up to this point has discouraged your heart. But take heart, because there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God having come in power. But what does that mean? Sounds kind of vague, right? How do we interpret this? What event is Jesus talking about here? Well, Jesus is talking about the transfiguration. He's declaring that the power and the majesty of God is about to be put on display. And we should not marvel at this. Jesus told us straight away in Mark chapter 1, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. We mustn't miss our response to what we're going to witness today. Our response to the kingdom of God coming in power very clearly, if you are unsaved, is to repent and believe the gospel. 
That's what he said. And if you have repented, repent still. Repent with greater depth and with more frequency. Saints, one of the evidences that we have repented unto salvation is that we repent still. Your repentance is not a one-and-done fire insurance. Repentance is not a flu shot. For those in Christ, our response as well is to be encouraged by the glory to come. We're to be encouraged by the glory to come. Our repentance is to grow deeper. Verse 1 tells us, there are some of you listening to me right now that before you die are going to see who I am and what awaits those who love me. That's quite a claim. How certain can the disciples be of this? Well, look at the first word out of Jesus' mouth in verse 1. What is it? Truly. Truly. Another word for truly is amen, meaning a solemn declaration that what I say is true, what I say is authoritative. You can take it to the bank that there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God having come in power. Well, watch as our scene unfolds here. Let's tie verse 1 to verse 2, the verse where many prefer to start the transfiguration narrative. Mark 9, verse 2. And six days later, so pause there for a moment. Well, as someone who is not the most patient person on the planet, I have to wonder, what were these six days like? Consider what these disciples have just been told is about to happen. You're going to see the kingdom of God coming in power. As in, everything you think you've been waiting for is around the corner. And we're going to see later that that misconception that they had is going to continue right up that mountain. But having been told this, having this carrot dangled in front of me, I can't imagine six days. Six days would have felt like a lifetime because you wouldn't have known that it was only going to be six days. It's like asking a child if they want to go to Chuck E. Cheese. And you say, great, you can go sometime before you die. What? What? I want to go now. I want to go now. And one day, two days, three, four, five, six days pass. When are we going to kick this thing off? Because what are they still thinking the kingdom of God means? Have they been so easily ridded of their messianic military dreams? Not hardly. Not hardly. And even if it is not to be a military mission, as the master keeps telling us, perhaps we can find a way to go around the cross. Perhaps is there yet a way to avoid all of this nasty business? Now we'll see in part two of this series that that is exactly how Peter's mind is still working. And can you really blame him for not wanting his master, his teacher, his best friend to die? I, was one, I, I wonder what was running through their minds during these six days as they waited. What were they thinking about? Well, if we look to their Torah, if we look to their writing, they had many reminders of promise fulfillment in Scripture, but it's not encouraging. It's rarely fast. Noah waited 120 years for the promised reign. Abraham waited 25 years for his promised son. Joseph waited 22 years for the promise of his dreams to come to pass. Of course, we know of Simeon, who waited his whole life for the promised Messiah. Will the coming of God be tomorrow, or will I be on my deathbed? Or have I completely misunderstood what the kingdom of God is that Jesus is speaking about? 
Heaven knows I've misunderstood just about everything else concerning Messiah up to this point. Of course, our word here for kingdom, though, it elicits a certain image in our mind, and rightly so. Kingdom. But the Greek range here allows for the translation royal splendor as well. So if we take that semantic range, that now makes a lot more sense, doesn't it? Read verse 1 with that range in view. Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the royal splendor of God having come in power. You see that? You see that? Boy, that makes a lot more sense, doesn't it? Makes a lot more sense. If we look at the allowable range of the word, we can see that the transfiguration is clearly in view. Not only from the word, but the proximity of the event, right? Look at the context. It's about to happen. So notice in verse 2. Verse 2, Mark is using the word later. You see that? Six days later. Well, by saying later, he's giving us a time frame because he wants us to connect what's about to happen to the foretelling that was in verse 1. Mark means for us to connect the dots. This is going to happen, and six days later. That word gives it away. Our peak behind the curtain is about to kick off. The royal splendor of God is about to come. This mountain scene is recorded in all the synoptic gospels, meaning Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And while John doesn't actually record this scene, he opens his very gospel referring to it. And we'll see that later. Well, back to our text, verse 2. Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John. The dynamic trio. Jesus' inner circle. Well, there's much we can glean from this more than we have time for. But a few things we notice in Mark's gospel. One, the bigger the revelation given, the smaller the crowd. Jesus doesn't do his truly big stuff in front of the thronging masses. The deep, the intimate teaching, the big reveals, the inner sanctum type stuff, the more consequential it is in Mark, the smaller the crowd. The smaller the crowd. And it always seems to happen on a mountain in Mark too, doesn't it? Always seems to happen on a mountain. Remember a few months ago, we encouraged you to watch out for mountains in Mark. If there's a mountain, something is about to go down. Something consequential is about to happen. Well, today is certainly no exception. Who is Jesus taking with him? Peter and the brothers James and John. Well, this inner circle would experience many things with Jesus that the other nine disciples would not. The raising of Jairus' daughter, Peter, James, and John. Jesus' agony in Gethsemane. Who did he bring with him? Peter, James, and John. Why? Why? What's so special about these three? Well, we know that all of them would fill critical roles in the years to come. As the church age was inaugurated at Pentecost, Peter would be the leader of the early church. He would be the one who would open the door to the gospel to both the Jew and Gentile. James was going to be the head of the church in Jerusalem, wouldn't he? And John, John would receive the revelation from God to close out the canon of Scripture. Big shoes were coming, bigger than these men ever thought they could fill. But Jesus knew. Jesus knew every pain they would suffer. He knew how they would die. He knew the encouragement that they would need as many of them would sit shackled for the gospel. Jesus knows everything you will face in your life. Jesus knows what hardships await, 
what trials. Jesus knows the end from the beginning and he's preparing you for it right now. You don't even know it. Trials and hardships that are out of sight for us are not out of his sight and he is equipping us for them. Jesus knew what he was preparing Peter, James, and John for and they were going to need every bit of it to walk out the cost of their discipleship. And why else is Jesus bringing these three? Well, we're told time and again that Jesus did not come to abolish the law, did he? But he came to fulfill it. Jesus was not a rebel. Jesus knows he is about to reveal something to these people that will be fantastical to the listening ear. Jesus is about to do something that if any one person were to recall it to you, you would tell them that they've lost their mind, wouldn't you? Thus, Jewish law had a pretty common sense protocol for determining the truth of a matter. Bring two or three witnesses. By the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact is confirmed. So this means that one of the key moments of revealing divinity, the divinity of the Son of God, was going to be now confirmable by Jewish law. Jesus doesn't color outside the lines. He made the lines to begin with. The law is his law. He is one with the Father. Jesus was there when the law came down in thunder on Mount Sinai. We forget that sometimes, don't we? We forget that. If something is about to happen whose truth or veracity can be challenged, I'm bringing three with me. I'm bringing three with me. So back to our text. And brought them up on a high mountain alone by themselves. Well, a little context for us here. What mountain are we speaking of? Well, there's two competing theories, one of Mount Tabor and one of Mount Hermon. There are a number of reasons that I, I believe the theory of Mount Tabor should be rejected. It's too far south. There was Josephus wrote about a Roman garrison that was built up there at the time. Numerous other reasons. Mount Hermon seems to be the location. Mount Hermon is present and spoken of throughout Scripture. The psalmist references it. It's highly symbolic, and it's very close to where Jesus and the disciples were. This is only about 15 miles to the north of Caesarea Philippi. If you leave Caesarea Philippi today after having visited those amazing ruins at the Temple of Pan, you can see Mount Hermon right there. I've been to this area. It's high, it's windy, and it's chilly. And it says that they were brought up or they were led up. And the language here of being led up or brought, us, brought up tells us that this was a steep climb. It wasn't a casual walk. There's no reason they had to go to the very top, necessarily. Mount Hermon is 9,200 feet above sea level. But we will say at 9,000 feet, the air is cool to cold, and it's beginning to thin out. So I want you to feel that, see that. Well, before we jump back into our text, I want to include an excerpt from Luke's telling of this, because it demonstrates the disciples' state of mind as we walk with them. Luke tells us that the disciples were overcome with sleep. Now, this doesn't mean that they were bored or disinterested, but this sleep is a physical response to the sorrow upon sorrow that they were feeling. Have you ever experienced that? Have you ever been emotionally traumatized or emotionally drained? What do you feel like doing? You just want to sleep, don't you? It's the body's natural response, and that's likely what we're seeing here with Peter, James, and John from the one, two, three punch that they've received, and now they've just climbed up a steep mountain in thin air, and they are overcome with sleep. Back to our text, 
and he was transfigured before them. In fact, Luke tells us that this is the scene that they actually awoke to. So here they are, cozied up to some rocks, in the nice, high, cool air. Eyelids are getting a bit heavy. The master's over there praying, like he did, overcoming sleep takes hold. And the next thing you know, you wake to find the master standing there, transfigured. What does that mean, transfigured? Well, it's a simple verb referring to an act that gives an outward expression of one's true inner character. That outward expression coming from and being truly represented of that inner character, meaning you're now seeing on the outside who he is on the inside. I love what Woost writes about the transfiguration. He writes, quote, the usual outward expression of our Lord in his humiliation was that of the man, Christ Jesus, the man of sorrows, the suffering servant, the one acquainted with grief. He to the world was the travel-stained itinerant preacher, the claimant to the Jewish messiahship. What the world saw was a peasant from Galilee, clad in homespun, the son of a carpenter of Nazareth. But now that outward expression was changed. Out from within the inmost being of the Son of God, there shone that dazzling glory of the essence of deity which he possesses co-eternally with God and the Spirit. It shone right through the clay walls of his humanity and through the clothing he wore. Close quote. Wow. Let's look further. Verse 3. Verse 3 and his garments were shining intensely white as no launderer on earth can whiten them. Jesus Christ, lit up like the sun, sparkling as a diamond, dazzling white, his face being altered. It was always there, but it was veiled. To be transfigured is not to become something that you were not. It is to reveal on the outside what you already are on the inside. So the antonym to transfiguration or the opposite of transfiguration would be to masquerade, which is an outward change that does not come from within. It's false. The transfiguration here is pure truth. Understand when we see this taking place, beloved, that Jesus has not changed There's nothing new about him. He does not have an extra measure of glory that he did not possess before. That's why it's so critical that we understand the meaning of transfigure or we could very unwittingly espouse some heresy. At no point in time is Jesus anything less than fully God and fully man. His divinity was never turned up or turned down. Jesus was the same walking up the mountain as he was coming down the mountain. Men gave their lives and endured great persecution to protect and to fight for such doctrinal truth. So we mustn't miss it. We mustn't miss it. But there's a takeaway that we must grasp, saints. Understand. Understand this. Jesus pulling back the veil here is not the miracle. That's backwards. Jesus being transformed with his brilliant white robes and his shining face is not the miracle. The miracle is that Jesus could contain his glory all the other time. That's the miracle. 
See how we have that backwards? Restraining his glory so as to walk among men. That's the miracle. This isn't the miracle on the mountain. This is how he is. This is who he is. This is Jesus in his natural state. Producing a veil of humanity that will cover this glory, that's the miracle. Behold your Savior as he is. John the Revelator beheld, then I saw heaven opened, and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written on it that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury and the wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. Peter, James, and John. Here's a taste. Here's just a taste of what's to come. And his garments were shining intensely white, so no launderer on earth can whiten them. Luke says that the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. Matthew says his face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as light. This is the same glory that Revelation says when the people see it, they will cry out for the rocks and for the mountains to fall on them, to hide them from the face of this very glory. That's the glory we're seeing Yet even now, it is restrained, for no man can see God and live. Paul tells Timothy, He who is the blessed and the only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see, to him be the honor and eternal dominion. Amen. The full glory of the triune God, the unveiled light of the Godhead is so bright, saints, there's not even a sun in heaven. There's no sun there. There's no need. That's how bright it is. At this very moment, true reality permeated the cool mountain air. The reality of who Jesus is, everything that we have ever suspected and indeed even confessed back in Caesarea Philippi was no longer mere confession. They have now seen. They have beheld. And they're going to need to lay hold of this for the work that is to come. Saints, we need to lay hold of this for the work that is to come. As we will see next week, preparing for Jesus' death is the point of this whole reveal giving them a firm foundation upon which to stand, to encourage their hearts from the sorrow they felt and from the fear that will come. The disciples beheld a visible reminder, both for the saved and for the unsaved. It is a visible manifestation of the glory that awaits believers. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with Him in glory. Colossians 3.4. What a wonderful promise. 
and yet a terrible reminder for the white-hot glory that will buckle the knees of those who will not bow. Every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There will be no argument or, res- or resistance. It is this dazzling white face, these shining robes that await us all. All roads lead to this dazzling white face and to those eyes of fire. You've heard New Age spirituality say that all roads lead to God. And they're right. They're right. All roads do lead to God. And at the end of that road, he will either meet us as our Savior or as our judge. Welcome to the gospel. Simultaneously, the best news and the most terrifying news in all of redemptive history. Say, well, I don't believe that. Well, what we believe has no bearing on what is true. Jesus, in our scene today, is truth. Who is this King of glory, the Lord of hosts? He is the King of glory, the psalmist declares. We have only begun wading into this amazing scene atop this mountain. If we thought it was incredible thus far, the guest list atop this mountain is about to get very interesting. But our takeaway this morning, beloved, is to take heart. Be encouraged. Jesus would have to die, but he has risen from the grave. And he is seated in full glory at the right hand of God the Father, and he ever lives to make intercession for you. The disciples saw a face glimmering with glory that we might have hope, a preview of the glory that awaits. The Apostle John, who is up on this mountain, he encourages those who believe at the beginning of his gospel. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, We will be like him because we will see him just as he is. You're going to see him just as he is, just as he is. He's not in a manger. He's not in fisherman garb. He's not on the cross. And praise the Lord, he's not in the grave. John could not even begin his gospel without the glory of this day on the mountain coloring his view. Listen to John 1, 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Listen to this. And we have seen his glory. Glory as the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. This day on the mountain changed John. It gave him a hope that he held on to long past Jesus' ascension. And it is our hope today. This is our Lord And when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. The writer of Hebrews tells us that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. That's where he sits today ruling and reigning, having given his disciples just a taste of what is to come. Beloved, we lay hold of that hope as well. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, through your word, 
you have indeed given us a glimpse behind the curtain. And Lord, it is amazing and terrifying in the same breath. Lord, we desire that we be on your kind side. Lord, that we be on, your, on the side of your mercy and on the side of your love this morning. Lord, we, just, we desire to see you as you are. Lord, we know that we will be changed. We ask that we live in light of this truth. We ask that we walk out this week this vision in our minds, who you are, seeing you as you are. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen.